coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. And in, in this type of research, you try to test a drug or a treatment to see if it's effective and safe for patients to treat a certain condition. Today, we'll do a deep dive into clinical trials. A top sarcoidosis researcher, Dr. Davia Patel from the University of Florida, will take us through the steps in creating a new drug, which is something badly needed in the sarcoidosis community. So every study, before the study starts, they determine you know, how many patients you need to see a certain effect size, to see a certain outcome. Coming up, Dr. Patel will tell us about the prospect of a new sarcoidosis treatment that she is researching, and perhaps, just perhaps, you may want to participate. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Stark Fighter podcast brought to you in part by a grant from Atire Pharma. I'm your host, John Carlin, and a fellow Sark Fighter. I do this podcast to offer my fellow Sark Fighters hope and to help you connect with other Sark patients to hear their stories, understand how sarcoidosis affects their lives, and hopefully. That helps you understand what you are up against and what you need to overcome. We're going to be talking a lot about that today. If you have pulmonary sarcoidosis and are between the ages of 18 to 75, you may qualify for this new clinical trial. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is excited to be partnering with Novartis for a research study to test an investigational treatment that may help those living with pulmonary sarcoidosis. This opportunity is not only taking place in the U.S., there are also international locations available. Visit www.stopsarcoidosis.org to learn more and see if you qualify. For participating international locations, check out clinicaltrials.gov and then search sarcoidosis CMK 389. And there will be a link in the show notes to make this easier for you if you're looking for direct contact via stopsarcoidosis.org. But I'm recording in my home office in Roanoke, Virginia, and my trusty boxer Dougal is curled up once again in what used to be my chair in my office. Now, it is his. Now, if you're new to the podcast or to Sark, I just want to give you a 30-second background on what sarcoidosis is. Sarcoidosis is an inflammatory disease characterized by the formulation of granulomas, non-caseating granulomas is what we usually say. Almost every organ can be affected by sarcoidosis, but 90% of cases are in the lungs. It's estimated that the prevalence in the United States ranges between 150,000 and 200,000, and about 1.2 million people with sarcoidosis in the entire world. In each case of sarcoidosis, of course, it varies widely among patients. In some cases, the disease goes away on its own, and you always want to be that person, but in up to a third of people diagnosed with a disease, it will require long-term treatment. 
And what I tend to find is the uh, people who, like me, are in that final one-third that have the long-term treatment, uh, those, those are uh, the people who are finding the Sark Fighter podcast. Uh, maybe, maybe you're early on and maybe it'll go away on its own. And for your case, I hope that is true. But for the rest of us who are battling this disease on an ongoing basis, uh, that's what it's all about. So that's just a brief description. We haven't really done a deep, basic dive into it. Uh, if you want to go all the way back to episode two, uh, we, we talked all about like sarcoidosis 101, and, and you can go back and, and listen to Dr. Simon Hart talk about that. But my guest today will be Dr. Devia Patel, and she's going to walk us through how a clinical trial works, and also she's going to introduce a trial right now, which she is uh, recruiting for. And let me give you a little bit more background on Dr. Patel, if I could. Her focus is to improve the clinical care of patients with sarcoidosis and to be an advocate for them. She's completed specialized training in sarcoidosis and participates in clinical research with the aim of improving the quality of life for patients. She routinely recruits patients for both single-center and multi-center clinical trials, including industry-sponsored and investigator-initiated clinical trials. And Dr. Patel is a clinical associate professor of pulmonology and the the director of the sarcoidosis and ILD programs at the University of Florida. So she's a big deal. <laughs> and she's she has done a lot and she sees sarcoidosis patients all the time, but she's also one of these amazing people who has the time to do research and is helping lead the fight against sarcoidosis. So Dr. Devia Patel is joining me here next on the Sark Fighter Podcast. I feel like a zombie Just feeding and stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the Sarcoidosis Solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast. And joining me now is Dr. Divya Patel at the University of Florida. She is a researcher, a clinical researcher, uh, primarily a clinician and uh, and teaches all about sarcoidosis. Dr. Patel, thank you for joining us here. Thank you for having me, John. I'm, I'm really excited uh, to talk about clinical trials and sarcoidosis. Yeah, we've, we've got a lot to talk about today, but can I just ping you real quick? Because you said that some of the people that who are your patients have actually mentioned the Sark Fighter podcast. Yeah, I've had a few patients mention your podcast and um they ask me questions based on, you know, what they've heard. And, you know, I'm glad there's people out there like you um, who are reporting, you know, good information, factual information and, um, you know, teaching our patients and our community. It's really great to have someone like you out there doing this work. Um, I tell my patients to be really careful because there's a lot of 
misinformation out there. And, um, you know, it's great to talk to you because you're one of the good guys putting out, putting out the um, true uh, facts. So appreciate that. Great. Well, uh, I'm so glad to hear that people are listening and hopefully that's helping them to ask you informed questions, which leads to them either getting better care or uh, or perhaps uh, feeling better about their own situation because they kind of know what to ask. So if that if that's what's happening, then yay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's what I was hoping. All right. So we're going to talk about clinical trials today because you're in, you're involved with that and we're and we're going to get into this. Uh, pretty deeply, but why don't we just start out by telling people what a clinical trial is? Okay, yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to start out at a higher level and and give you an umbrella term called clinical research. And under clinical research, one aspect of that is clinical trials. Um, Other types of clinical research, like very common ones um, that are going on usually in, in some sarcoidosis clinics, include um, observational studies. So these are studies in which um, the information that your doctor has been collecting on you, like your demographics, your uh, your lung function tests, your imaging data, um, your doctor can use that information in a de-identified way so that your identity isn't compromised and put that information together with other patients to describe the disease or um, learn more about sarcoidosis. So that's the simplest kind of clinical research. There are a lot of institutions also have something called a biobank and biobanks are um, basically a repository of different samples. Um, The most common and easiest to get is blood samples. Um, Sometimes uh, even sputum, um, you can get genetic information from that. In biobanks and biomarker uh, studies, they, your doctor usually asks you or the researcher asks you for permission um, to collect the sample and, and hold on to it. Those samples are kept you know, sometimes for long periods of time, and they can be used for different types of research. Usually that research is um, done in, the, in a laboratory setting with experiments. Um, Another really common one is are called databases or registries. Um, And you guys probably, some of you probably know about these, you know, databases and registries because FSR, the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, has had their SARC registry where you can enter information about your um, sarcoidosis. And actually at my institution, we've, we've published three papers using that sarcoidosis registry. So what that does is allows large groups of patients to collect information together and we can describe the disease or, um, or um, use it to help patients uh, get into other types of studies. So the last type that I want to talk about and, and the topic of our discussion today is clinical trials. So clinical trials are also called interventional studies or experimental studies. And in, in this type of research, you try to test a drug or a treatment to see if it's effective and safe for patients to treat a certain condition. So, so for example, like in sarcoidosis, um, currently, you know, we have treatments that are not FDA approved. And mm-hmm. in order to get most of them, right? I most mean- of them, yeah, most of them are not FDA approved. In order to get FDA approval for sarcoidosis medicines, 
We have to do clinical trials, take the data we gain from that and show it to the FDA. And if, and when the FDA looks at it and it looks promising and effective and safe for patients, they give approval for it. And that's a place we've been lacking in sarcoidosis. And, you know, there's, there's uh, researchers and companies out, out there trying to make a difference in that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, that's probably been one of the top two or three topics that we've discussed over the the first you know year and a half two years of, of the podcast is is the difficulty in in finding the correct drug to because there is there uh, once you get past prednisone everything's kind of a best guess uh, unfortunately um and so you guys you talked about all these different um you know observational and databases and so forth and so on so you're kind of looking at, okay, we have a population that we can identify as this black females, African-American females, African-American males, white males, you know, whatever. And you start to look at efficacy and you look for trends and that's, that maybe identifies what's going on. And if it happens often enough, maybe you can say, yeah, okay, we, we feel like that works, but maybe we don't know why. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, yeah. so everything is trying to point the needle in the right direction, but when you get down to brass tacks, what we're talking about is a clinical trial where someone, and we've talked to several different people, uh, a tire pharma is underwrites this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are others out there that we'll, we'll talk about later. Um, but they have started to identify, uh, some new mechanisms within the body to, to, control sarcoidosis and maybe be, and maybe get these drugs that will be on label. Right. But you got to go through the process first. You got it. You got to go through this clinical trial process to, to sort of test and see if it works and then sort of prove that it works. And, and, and you advance through the whole process like that. Have I said that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, You know, the issue right now is, as you said, the majority of medicines that we use outside of prednisone for sarcoidosis are drugs that we call um, that are classified as repurposed drugs. What that means is they were originally studied in other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, um, uh, lupus, the conditions like that. And what clinicians have done is say, well, you know, this medicine works in these other conditions. So theoretically it should work in sarcoidosis. Um, And the, and that is kind of what we've been doing. There's very few, very few, um, what we call the gold standard studies, which are randomized control trials in which the researcher and the patient is blind and they're given a treatment. And um, then you see if the treatment first, is it safe? And then second, is it effective? Um, and that is a huge problem in sarcoidosis. The reason is, is because many times we give a patient a drug and we don't know whether it's going to really work on them or not. For example, the most common one we use is methotrexate. And there's studies that suggest that up to 40% of patients don't respond to methotrexate. So, so you put a patient on a medicine, you wait for six months, And then you find out six months later, well, this medicine is not working for my patient. So you just spent six months time, I would call wasted time where the patient doesn't have a good quality of life or they're having more inflammation and scarring of their organs. Um, So clinical trials um, are really key for us to advance our field and provide new, better treatment options for our patients. 
Right, um, right. I mean, yeah. if somebody has has cardiac sarcoidosis, they don't have six months to mm-hmm. to to test and see if it's the right or wrong drug. Six months yeah. later, it could be a lot of scar tissue and permanent damage to their heart or their spinal cord or, yeah. you know, lungs, whatever. Yeah, or you know, arrhythmias that cause their IC, their dis, their defibrillator to discharge and shock them. I've had patients um, like that. Um, you know, because their medicine wasn't working for them, that their defibrillator um, for their cardiac sarcoidosis kept going off and we had to find a better medicine that worked for him. So I wanna, I wanna ask another question. If we're, if we're able to use some of these medications, um, I mean, I, I think we've discussed this, but it, it feels like the menu is not nearly complete. You, you're a physician, somebody comes to you, I'm sick, I've got sarcoidosis. And you're looking at them with this sort of limited number of drugs that, that we can look at. So how bad is the need to get some additional treatments or drugs for, for SARC? Um, uh, research and clinical trials to find new treatments for sarcoidosis is like one of the top priorities for our field. Um, if we just even talk about a simple problem, for example, when I prescribe my patients, the current medications we use like methotrexate or azathioprine or mycophenolate, a lot of times insurance companies say, well, no, this is not FDA approved for your condition. And, you know, we go back and forth and do appeals and, you know, prior offs and things like that. So just to even get basic insurance coverage of drugs for our patients um, doing clinical trials is very important. Also, you know, when we do clinical trials, we can get a good idea of how a drug affects a patient's organ. So for example, if you're testing a drug for pulmonary sarcoidosis, you can get a good idea of how it affects your lung function, your symptoms, your quality of life. And without those types of randomized clinical trials, you don't know that. And you're just um, relying on information from what we call low quality evidence. So those observational studies I mentioned earlier, those are considered low quality evidence. Um, so so there's, a, there's so many reasons that doing clinical trials in sarcoidosis are imperative um, for, our, for our community. Well, you, you know, the whole nation has watched during the pandemic as uh, the vaccine was sort of rushed into production uh, the Moderna, the Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer. Um, and you could see why people had to react in a hurry. Um, but everything I have ever heard suggests that it's really difficult even to start this process to get a clinical trial going and so forth. And especially with sarcoidosis with literally so few patient patients, relatively speaking. So what is the process for, for going from zero and trying to get a new treatment for sarcoidosis? Um, that's a great question, John. Um, and, and you're right. It generally is a very prolonged process, um, but it's important to go through, through that process step-by-step step to ensure patient safety. Um, that's, that's the most important thing. So the first step is, um, Researchers like at a university or a pharmaceutical company um, do experiments and find, you know, come up with ideas of treatment options for a specific disease like sarcoidosis. 
And that is called the discovery and development step. And um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's drugs that have been used for other conditions. Like, for example, for in sarcoidosis, about, I would say, I guess, 15 years ago now, there was a randomized trial for infliximab. Um, uh, for patients and infliximab is usually used in other conditions, but um, the, the investigators repurposed it for sarcoidosis and did a randomized clinical trial of, of infliximab. Is that Remicade? Yes, that's Remicade. Exactly. Okay. Infliximab is the generic name for Remicade. Step two in the um, process of getting new treatments is what's called preclinical research. What that means is there's lab testing, uh, usually on, you know, sometimes on animals, sometimes on models of diseases. And those are to answer like basic questions about safety. Is it safe to give this drug or product to a living organism or, or like, you know, mice and, and I was going to say typically, typically that's a mouse, right? Yeah. Typically it's a mouse or, you know, other types of animals that are used in research. So those are probably those two are the most probably the difficult steps in my mind, but you, you know, um, you know, these researchers might, might disagree with me and say, well, it's more the clinic, the actual trial itself. The third step is where you actually start getting patients and humans involved. And this is where the drugs are tested in people to make sure the first step, the first study is always about safety. Um, And that's important in new and novel drugs. If it's a repurposed drug, you already, you know, a lot about safety because it's been used in other diseases. So that's not as important when you're repurposing drugs, but with new drug development, that's important to make sure it's safe. And, you know, at this point in time, there's um, uh, a lot of stuff happening about um, testing the, the drug, like how, you know, what the concentration of it is in the blood and all kinds of different um, testing is going on at that time. And then the last step is once we know it's safe, does it work? Is it efficacious? And um, that's the final step in trying to get a a drug approved. Once you have that information, you can take it to the um, FDA in the United States and other agencies and other countries um, that uh, we'll look at the safety data, the efficacy data, and decide whether this drug should be approved for a certain condition or not. Yeah. Okay. So, but in order to do that, you've got to have this, this, and people may not know what this term placebo is. Mm-hmm. So let's say you've got 10 people in your trial. Some of them get the drug and some of them get something that looks like the drug, but is actually nothing. And that's called the placebo. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, it kind of feels unfortunate. Well, maybe not if depending upon the efficacy or the safety of the drug, but what, you know, why do you have to have half your group or a portion of your group get the placebo? How does, how, how does that help you learn? Yeah. I, I, I think I hear your concerns, you know, like if I'm going to go into a trial and I'm going to get a placebo, why would I want to do that? So the reason you want to have placebos is in order to be sure that the effect that you're looking for in a drug is real and and, um, true, you need to have a comparison group. So what that means is you give one group the actual drug and treatment and 
in a blinded way. So the patient doesn't know what they've taken and the investigator doesn't know what they've taken. And you get, you follow up with them and get tests on them and ask them how they're doing. And then you have the other group who's getting the placebo. Um, and oftentimes like it, it'll be the same color. It'll have the same smell or texture as the, as the real drug. And um, the patients that are taking the placebo, you try to see, okay, did you get the same improvement in lung function, for example, or did you see the same uh, improvement in the CAT scan? Are the, are the patients feeling better? So um, one example is, you know, let's say you give a drug and a placebo, and if the patients in both those groups have the same amount of improvement and the same amount of side effects, that tells you that your drug isn't any better than placebo. Most of the time, I mean, 99% of the time, that's not the case. Um, yeah, so by the time you've gotten to that point, there's there's reason to believe this drug is going to work, right? Right, I mean, right. It, it worked in mice. It's done, yeah. you know, and you're not looking at, you're looking at not only the mouse's overall health, but how did that, yeah. how did whatever it is within the mouse that you're looking at at the cellular level react? And that's, so that's how you know, right? I mean, that's yeah. how you think you know. Yeah. Um, and the other reason I'll say placebos are really important is when you're in a clinical trial, um, let's say you're taking, you know, you're in the clinical trial, you're taking the medicine and you don't know what it is, whether it's placebo or real medicine. Um, and let's say you get a headache uh, or you get a cough. The question is, is that headache because of the medicine or is it because you have headaches anyways? And so what the placebo group helps you see and determine is what are the side effects of the medicine? Because presumably the side effects of the medicine will show up in the, in the treatment or intervention group and not in the placebo group. Gotcha. So, so you go, you go through this process and I'm, and, I, and I'm going to ask you in a moment about, because people, and we report this on the news all the time, phase one, phase two, phase three, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is something probably nobody ever knew until the pandemic. And now these are terms people throw around. But before I get to that, I just wanted to ask you, like, like at, the, the FDA is watching all of this. I mean, you're the University of Florida, major researcher, credentials, all your colleagues have credentials, and that would be true of, of, of many other research institutes in the United States and around the world. But, but, but at the end of the day, it's up to the FDA, isn't it? Isn't their oversight that drives all this? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I personally believe we're very fortunate in our country to have an organization like the FDA that protects um, patients from, um, you know, and, and tries to ensure that the medications that are out there available to patients are safe and effective. So what, so the FDA has groups of scientists and administrators that meet with researchers, they, you know, perform inspections of clinical studies to make sure that the patient's rights um, are, are not violated and that they're being, they're being safe in the study. They also verify the quality and the integrity of the um, data that you collect from the study. So, and, and then at the end, what they do is once they know that this was a good clinical trial, it was done in a good way, they look at the information from the study and say, hey, is this drug safe for people with sarcoidosis? Um, is this safe for, for people to take? And does it work for them? Um, you can have a drug that's safe, but if it doesn't work, then why have patients out there taking the drug? Um, so, 
So both of those things are important, safety and efficacy. Um, the yeah. FDA also works really closely with the pharmaceutical companies or the sponsor to make sure that all potential side effects are covered. And it's really um, interesting that during a, during a clinical trial, let's say you stub your toe because you were you know, walking too fast down the steps or something like that. Everything gets reported to the FDA. The fact that you stubbed your toe and the FDA wants to make sure that the fact that you stubbed your toe isn't because of the drug. So it's all about patient safety. Gotcha. And so, yeah. and then once the drug is available out to the public, they continue to monitor safety. So there's mechanisms in which they're, um, you know, that doctors can report side effects and, and the FDA is always watching once that, once that drug is, is out there in the public. And like I said, we're very fortunate in our country to have an organization like that that's out there trying to um, uh, look out for the public good. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's take a look at um, the, these different phases mm -hmm. uh, because you, you got, you got to go from the mouse uh, to clinical trials and all the, all these things we've been talking about, but, but all that is done in phases. So what is phase one? Yeah. So phase one is really, you know, the beginning of when you're starting to test the drug on humans. And the key part of phase one is to make sure that the drug is safe. And the other thing that um, the trial does during this phase is figure out what is the right, right dose of this drug for humans. So they'll test different doses of, of the medication too. And this is usually done with normal and healthy volunteers rather than, um, you know, people with the condition that they're trying to treat. So that's phase one. So you're looking to identify side effects, that sort of thing. Yeah. Side effects and dose. Okay. And then phase two, what happens then? So this is a phase where you really, you know, you're also looking at side effects. You want to know about safety, but you're also trying, starting to figure out, well, does this drug work for this disease? Uh, for example, sarcoidosis. So this is a small group of patients with the disease or condition like sarcoidosis. Um, and they give this they give the drug that they're testing and they say, hey, did it benefit these the small group of patients? So that's phase two. And how long does that take? So it depends on the drug. It can, it's different, uh, usually at least a few months and sometimes longer, depending on the drug. But okay, I gotcha. would say I, the ones that I've participated in, at least three months is my experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And then so then phase three you're starting to get down to brass tacks. Yes. Phase three is really like where, you know, the real work of this clinical trial is going on and, you know, you're waiting to see whether this drug actually um, works or not. So basically it's for number one to see, does this drug really work? Does it impact, um, the disease in the way you want it to. So for example, if it's a sarcoidosis drug for the heart um, and your aim is to have that drug improve your heart function, did it actually achieve that goal? So that's, that's the main thing in phase three. And you, you're continuously ongoing monitoring for adverse reactions and side effects to make sure you get a clearer understanding of that of that stub toe or, or whatever. Sure. And, and then this is where you really figure out 
what is the right dose? What dose should the patients take with this disease? And um, in this phase, there's large numbers of patients. So usually hundreds and in different diseases, like in heart diseases, sometimes thousands of patients. And when it came, for example, like the COVID vaccines, those trials had 40,000 plus patients in it. So this is just a large group of patients. Um, yeah, so that's phase three. All right. So, so then with phase three, if you have a successful outcome in your research on phase three, that's when you can start making it available to the public, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a, I know there's a phase four and I'll ask you about that in a second, but if phase, if everything goes well through phase three, then you can say, okay, doctors start prescribing this. Yeah, the FDA can say that. So the FDA can say that. Right. After yes. phase three, you take all the information that you gathered from the clinical trial and you show it to the FDA and say, this is the information we collected. And they decide if it's approved or not. And then if they decide it's approved, then it can become available to the wider public. Right. And they did, again, because people are familiar with the COVID story, they did what they called an emergency authorization for Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson and Moderna so they could start giving the shots. And then after people had already been getting the shots, they came back to guess what? The FDA approved it. It's not experimental anymore. But yeah. in order to try and bring an end to the pandemic, they did that. Um, I doubt that they would do that with sarcoidosis. Yeah, the, no. the demand and the need just isn't overwhelming like that. Well, you know, um, you know, I think it made sense in the pandemic. It was a public health emergency. So it made sense to make that available. One other thing I want to mention to you, John, is, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, these vaccines were rushed so much. How do we know they're safe? The truth is for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, the technologies that were used for that they had undergone phase one and two trials for over, for, dec for over a decade. And so we just happened to be lucky that these researchers were looking into coronavirus vaccines and then quickly uh, the, the companies were able to, you know, provide this and put it into a phase three trial with 40,000 people in it and, and all of that. Yeah, outstanding. And then so but after a drug gets out there and this is phase four, the FDA continues to monitor. Right. Yeah. So it's not over. It's not over for for the for the um, drug at this point. The FDA is monitoring safety and efficacy in a real world population. The reason that it's important, that's important is in a clinical trial, everything is just very organized and neat and everything is perfect. And the real world is completely imperfect. And the patients that are in the clinical trial aren't necessarily the same people in the in 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 your office or in your clinic that are seeing you. So they want to see how does how safe is this medicine in the real world? How how well does it work? And um, so yeah, and and again, that's completed after the drug is approved by the FDA. Yeah. Okay. So and 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 listeners, uh, if you will, I know we've been talking in great detail about clinical trials and. Uh, I just want everybody who's listening to know that at the end of this, we're going to be talking about a specific clinical trial that Dr. Patel is working on. Uh, and e there may be people listening to this that might have interest in participating or certainly following. I know there will be people interested in following the results mm -hmm. of your clinical trial, which does involve a major medical company and, and, and you uh, as, a, as a leading sarcoidosis researcher um, are, are the point person on this. So, 
but I want people to understand what this is all about. And that's why we're, that's why we're going into all this sort of exhausting detail on clinical sure. trials. And, and I'm going to, I'm just going to continue down that road. I think it's fascinating the process that has, that we have to go through. Um, just as an aside, uh, I grew up on a small farm in upstate central New York, mm-hmm. and uh, we found uh, an old bottle dump out on the, in the, in the farm. And we started digging and someone had buried barrels of old bottles. And all of a sudden we came across this treasure trove of like stuff from the, like the mid 1800s. And one of them was a bottle that was not broken. I still have it to this day that said the great Dr. Kim Kilmer's swamp root, kidney, liver, and bladder cure. <laughs> And, you, and it had a, you know, it was a bottle that had a cork in it. And some guy was going around probably in a horse and carriage in small towns and holding it up and saying, this will cure everything. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and everything you and I are talking about today is to avoid the great Dr. Kilmer and, exactly. <laughs> and all this snake oil. So he must have yeah. been, a, you know, a classic snake oil salesman, as it were. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. For, for many, many decades, there was Lots of people out there, um, one, claiming, claiming to be doctors, number two, if they were doctors, creating their own concoctions and saying, you know, I've got the treatment for your heart disease, or I've got the treatment for your tuberculosis. And those were not studied in a systematic way, like the way we do these days. And the most important thing, and the reason we do that is to protect our patients and try to get them, you know, treatments that work and are safe. Okay, so let's 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 continue on down that road. So let's say someone signs up and they say, "All right, I'm game for a clinical trial." What should they expect? Yeah. So the first and most important thing to know is that every clinical trial has certain criteria to determine um, who should be enrolled in the study. So those are called inclusion and exclusion criteria. So the first thing that's happening is when you decide you want to be in a clinical trial is your doctor or the researcher you work with are going to determine, do you actually qualify for that study? And, um, and this could be done, like, for example, the way I do it in my clinic is every patient that comes into my clinic, I, I think about the, about the clinical trials that I have and which patients could fit into which one. And I, when they come and see me, I say, you know, if they qualify for one, I say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, you qualify for this study. This is what the study is about. Is that something you'd be interested in? So that's one, one thing that can happen. Other ways that you can do that also is online. There's lots of information about clinical trials online, and you can um, take surveys to determine whether you qualify for certain studies. So, um, so, so that's the first most important thing. Do you qualify for the study or not? And then um, each study has like, you know, a set number of parameters to determine like what is all going to be included in the trial and the type of data that they're collecting. So um, the doc, the the researcher or the doctor that you're going to work with is going to explain all that to you. So they're going to tell you about, um, you know, the number of visits and how often you have to come and, and what testing you're going to do. And, um, and um, we do that really early on to make sure that, you know, you're the right person and you're committed to this study. Now, and then, you know, certain things uh, like would disqualify somebody, maybe, maybe their weight, 
Um, maybe the fact that they're already taking another medicine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for instance, so, so you may be looking for somebody that's on methotrexate and I show up and raise my hand, but they say, no, you're taking Humira. Uh, so, you know, we can't study you because that's, that's going to mess up our study in one way or another um, or our data or, you know, whatever. So you got to, you got to find people that fit and that's got to be extremely difficult to find those people, isn't it? Yeah, um, sometimes it can be the more inclusion or exclusion criteria a study has, the harder it is to find people that meet every single one of those criteria. It's just, you know, making the pool of people that qualify narrower and narrower, like, you know, kind of like a sieve or something. Um, And, and this is a, this is a really key thing that the researchers and investigators um, decide because you don't want, you want to try to get, um, you want to try to get a result that is beneficial to patients, to, you know, and to specific groups of patients, and you want to see that it works in that group. So if you, you know, if you have a patient with sarcoid, this is a very simple, basic example. If you're doing a study on sarcoidosis, but then you let people in to your study that also have rheumatoid arthritis, well, then you made the results of your study difficult to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that person has two things wrong with them. Right. And so, and so you don't know what's, what the cause and effect is. It's very difficult exactly. to trace. So let's say you find that right person and, and they pass muster, they make whatever it is. Uh, and you say, okay, you're in what, what do they expect then? Yeah. So, the, so it, let's say that, you know, um, you, you, you qualified for the study, um, your investigator or researcher explained to you what the study is all about, what it entails, and did a process that's called informed consent in which they review all the risks to you and your health and the benefits to you. Then you decide yes or no, whether you want to be in the study or not, that's called informed consent. And, um, after this, if, if you agree to it, then you what we do is we get a baseline set of measurements. So without the, you know, what, how is your lung function normally? How does your EKG look normally? How does your CAT scan look normally? Um, your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your blood work. So we, that's called a baseline to get kind of an understanding of you and your body. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it also includes like advanced testing, like CAT scans that, you know, many of your listeners have had probably many times. And then there's other more advanced types of imaging, like that we can do of the lungs, for example, PET scans. Um, the patients that have cardiac sarcoidosis will be really familiar with PET scans. But for those that aren't, um, PET scans are a way to look at um, active inflammation in your body. And it, it's done similarly in a way to an x-ray, but a little bit more complicated. Um, uh, a dye is injected into your body um, and uh, the cells that are very active, um, the in- inflammatory cells take in that dye and, and light up on this PET scan. So that sometimes is also used in clinical trials. Yeah, I haven't had the pleasure of one of those yet. The, the MRI tube is, is my friend. <laughs> okay. Yeah. MRIs are pretty common too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so they're, they're in the trial, you've got their baseline. I just, 
it's so funny. I've, you know, we're towards the end of the year. I'm getting a jump start on my fitness goals for 2022. So I started working out with a trainer. So he's establishing, all right, how many pushups can you do? And you know, what speed can you do this? And how long can you go on the bike and how fast can you run a mile and all this? So those are, those are my baselines. And hopefully after I work with him for a while, I'll see improvement. And it's, it's kind of the same thing in medicine. You got it. That's yeah. absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you shared that analogy because sometimes it's hard to understand what a screening would would look like. But that you're absolutely absolutely right. That first day you went to your personal trainer and he measured, you know, how much you weigh and how many pushups you can do. That was your screening test. Got it. Got it. So. All right. So what happens after the screening test and you get into the trial? So if you pass through the screening test, so after the screening test, you know, we double check and triple check to make sure you still meet all the inclusion and exclusion criteria. And if you do, then at that point, um, uh, you undergo what's called randomization into the trial. And what that means is usually it's a computer um, that assigns you to a certain group and you don't know what group it is. And the investigator or researcher that's working with you doesn't know uh, what, you know, what it is, what is in that group, but you get assigned to a group and there's different ways that you can get assigned into the group. So um, you'll hear, if you go into a clinical trial, you'll hear terms like, oh, this is a one-to-one randomization or a two-to-one randomization. What that means is, you know, let's say you have 10 patients. If you're having a one-to-one randomization, five people are going to go into group A and five people are gonna go into group B. So both groups will have an equal number of patients. Let's say you have a two to one randomization. And if you have those same 10 patients, you're gonna have double the number in group A compared to the group B. The reason it's important to pay attention to that is trials um, that have higher, like a um, a two to one or three to one randomization, that gives you a bigger probability of getting the drug that is being investigated. So you have a higher probability of getting the real medicine and not the placebo. So there's plenty of trials out there. Um, most trials are one to one and that's a 50, 50 chance. But if you go into a two to one trial or a three to one trial, the probability you're going to get the real drug goes up. Gotcha. So then you get into these trials and there's, there's this whole thing called bias. Mm -hmm. What is bias? Yes. So bias um, uh, is such an important aspect uh, in clinical trials. Preventing bias is such an important aspect. The reason is um, because us humans are flawed. And when we have a drug that, you know, we think could help a group of patients we badly, sincerely want that drug to work so we can get it approved. So without, um, without like different um, processes to prevent that bias, it could affect the results of your study. So you could get a false positive study or a false negative study. You never wanna end up with a false result in your study because then you've just wasted your time and you wasted all these patients' time. Um, so, the main way we reduce bias, number one, is blinding. Blinding is, as I mentioned before, you don't know what medicine you're taking and the researcher doesn't know. And what that does is it 
prevents you, it prevents like, for example, if I'm a researcher studying this drug and I know my patient is taking the drug that I'm interested in, well, I might interpret the results of the test as more positive than they actually are. Because my bias is I really want this drug to work for my patients. So blinding is key. The randomization process is also key because that prevents something called selection bias. Selection bias is, you know, me as an investigator, I want my medicine to work. So I'm going to pick the best people to go into the intervention arm so I get the best results. So blinding prevents selection bias. There's also something called um, performance bias, which means that, you know, I as an investigator, if I know that this patient is getting the study drug that I'm interested in, um, I might, in, like I said, I might interpret the results of his testing as more positive than the people who are not on the drug that I'm interested in. So there's many, many types of biases, and it's really important that we follow the study protocols because by following those, we reduce the risk of bias. And, and I think that that's, that's got to be so difficult because there's a lot riding on this. There's, there's patients' health mm-hmm. first and foremost, but also uh, these pharmaceutical companies, some of them stand to make a great deal of money if their drug for sarcoidosis or anything else, cancer, pick one. Yeah. Um, is chosen and approved and effective and people start using it and doctors start prescribing it. And that's a home run for the pharmaceutical company. And they've, let's face it, they've risked a lot of money getting the drug just to the point where you're testing it. Absolutely. Um, What I've found in my experience in clinical trials is, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the time, these companies are very, very, very committed to getting the truth. So not getting those false positives or negatives, and they do everything they can to reduce the bias. And, and, I, and I think that's a really great thing um, um, to have people that are really committed to avoiding bias in the studies. So something that happens in, in these studies is patients sometimes need to stop or taper their medications in the middle of the study. Is that common and in you know, I, I know that that is a concern to people that are involved in these trials. Yeah, this is such a good question, John. Um, I would say this is the number one thing that prevents people from going into a trial. So, for example, um, there might be a study that says, you know, before you can take this investigational treatment, you need to stop your methotrexate and be off of it for a month. And you might be someone who has you know, pulmonary sarcoidosis, and you've been taking methotrexate for 10 years, and it's kept you pretty stable. And you don't, you don't know if you really want to rock the boat. (laughs) Um, But the reason, the reason it's important to sometimes stop or taper off the medicine during a clinical trial is because if, if you're taking the methotrexate and the investigational drug, in the end, the results are difficult to interpret was the result because of the investigational drug or because of the methotrexate you were already taking. So get taking, taking away and tapering off the medicines you're on sometimes is a way to really see is the, is the positive or negative result um, from the investigational drug or not. Uh, yeah, I'd have a, I can see why it's difficult to recruit people because why would you want, want to rock the boat if whatever 
you're taking is working? Well, so I'll, I'll give you a good example of that. I have patients, you know, in their 60s, 70s and 80s that have been diagnosed with sarcoidosis for, you know, 30, 40 plus years. They've been taking the same dose of prednisone and methotrexate or, or Remicade this whole time. And nobody has even tried to see what happens if you come off of it. So sometimes patient don't, don't, patients don't even realize it. Many, I see patients sometimes who've been on treatment for so long and they're not really sure it's really helping them or not. Um, so in the trial that I'm currently recruiting for, um, it does require, for example, a steroid adjustment. So if you've been taking prednisone 10 milligrams for a couple of years, um, and you know, we slowly bring that dose down. It's not done suddenly and it's done in a safe way and in a way that we're monitoring you. Um, and we're making sure that as we're taking down that dose of prednisone, you're not having side effects or problems. So it's done in a very controlled way. Yeah. And one of the other things that, that apparently comes up a lot in, in talking to people about this is um, a patient gets into the trial They've, they've done the adjustment as you requested. They're, they're worrying about what's going on. Uh, but but their trips, the number of trips they have to make to the doctor's office increases. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a correlation between their level of illness and that? Or is it just because you're watching them more closely? Um, it, it's, it's, the, it's the latter answer that you just said, John. When, when you're in a clinical trial, you're being observed very carefully for side effects, um, for uh, new reactions. So there are a lot more trips to the doctor than what you're normally used to. Um, Some of the patients that I enroll in my studies, they actually like that because they get to see me every three weeks or every four weeks. And um, because they're in a trial, you know, we, we're, we keep tabs on them very, very carefully. So some patients, you know, sometimes it can be a pain or a chore to come over like every three or four weeks, but um, some patients really appreciate having that close monitoring and close interaction with me um, and, and, and making sure that they're doing okay. Gotcha. So, so that people shouldn't be concerned. Uh, yeah, no. Although, although I can see where it's a pain because, you know, going to the doctor's office is, yeah. is difficult. You got to take a day off from work, half a day and sit in the waiting yeah. room forever. And who wants to do that, right? So, John, I, I, I don't think I've explained the main incentive to be in a clinical trial, like clearly. What I want to okay. say is if I'm a patient with sarcoidosis and I've been on methotrexate and I've been on prednisone, it's working okay for me. Um, you know, my quality of life isn't perfect. You know, I get a little short of breath when I'm walking uphill. You know, I get side effects from methotrexate. The day after I take it, I feel real tired and worn out. The reason that you may want to think about being in a clinical trial is that the drug that's in the clinical trial may work even better than what you're on now and have fewer side effects. That's the reason to go into a trial. If you're already on some other therapy. And let's face it. I think most people are looking for something that works better than what they're already taking. If you have sarcoidosis, (laughs) you're a hundred percent correct. We are not in a position in, in sarcoidosis and the field of sarcoidosis yet where we can say, oh yeah, we got great treatment options for our patients. We know that our treatment options are problematic for most patients. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's certainly been my experience. And uh, I've talked to so many patients here on the Sark Fighter podcast, and almost all of them have described some version of, of, of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going we're to get to your recruitment and your trial here in just a minute. And I'm very anxious to, to have you uh, start talking about that a little bit more specifically. But uh, again, if somebody goes through the whole process and then they kind of raise their hand after they get involved and say, you know what, I don't know if this trial is for me, can, can patients back out? Oh, yeah. So what you should know is that you have the right to take away your consent, that informed consent I mentioned earlier, to be in the study at any point in time. That is your right. Um, You know, that could be after your screening visit and you say, you know what, this is just too many visits for me and it's just too far of a drive. We try to be very cognizant about that before we recommend a study to you. Because for example, if I have a patient that lives six hours away and he or she's going to drive every three weeks to come and see me, that's a challenge for them, especially, you know, if they need a driver and things like that. So they may not be the right person for that trial. And there might be another trial that's closer to where they live that might be better for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to try to avoid We want to be upfront and as honest and transparent with you so you know what to expect so that, you know, you don't have to have three or four visits and decide this is not right for me because that's a waste of your time. So would would you as a major medical center ever like drive and pick that person up or provide transportation? (laughs) Or I mean, does that happen in the real world? Um, You know, we are huge advocates for our patients and, and for our patients to be in clinical trials. Um, when we're negotiating and contracting with um, the study sponsors, we try really hard to make it easier on our patients and try to request that the sponsors offer travel reimbursement. So, um, and and because we're in a location where sometimes, you know, it's hard to get to and we have patients driving a few hours away, sometimes we even request that the sponsor um, provide compensation for them to stay overnight when there's a lot of testing to be done so that, and, and, you know, and um, most sponsors are very understanding about that. Um, And so there's oftentimes there is some compensation for travel. Um, Not every study has that, but they will, you know, if there is, you, um, you can ask about that if they haven't mentioned it to you even before you go into the trial. Gotcha. So, um, and you're talking about sponsors, typically that's, that's a drug company. Yeah. The sponsors, when I say sponsors, it means the drug company. Yes. Yeah. It's not like Procter and Gamble that sponsors your local television show right. <laughs> or something right. like that, you know, shampoo right. company or something. All yeah. right. So now let's, let's get down to what you are working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about the trials that you are actively recruiting for right now. Yeah, so in sarcoidosis, the trial I'm um, uh, recruiting for is a trial that's been sponsored by the pharmaceutical company called Novartis. Um, The purpose of this trial is to investigate a potential new drug, and the aim is that to improve the ability of the lungs that are affected by sarcoidosis to work work better um, and to function better. So that's the main trial in sarcoidosis that I'm, I'm participating in right now. Um, there's, so the way that it works is 
I'm recruiting patients for this trial, but there's other um, researchers and investigators in other states like Maryland, Colorado, in my state of Florida, Ohio, and then in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who are also recruiting. So just because you don't live in Florida doesn't mean that you can't, you, you can't investigate or look into this study. There might be a center that's close to you. There are some very motivated sarcoidosis patients out there. When I started um, participating in this Novartis trial, I got a call from a patient that lives in, Alabama, in near Birmingham, Alabama, and a patient that lives in Atlanta, and a patient that lives in Texas, asking me that they wanted to come over to be in the trial. So there are people that are motivated, and oftentimes um, that that travel is reimbursed by the pharmaceutical company. But there's very motivated patients out there. They're really looking into it. And, you know, even if it's across the country, they'll make it happen to be in a study. Okay. Uh, so what, so what is, what are the parameters of your study? What, what does the patient look like, feel like that you're searching for? Um, good question. So first, it, uh, first it's age. So we want people between the age of 80, 18 and 75 years old. Um, that's the age group we're looking for. The next important criteria is um, a number called the BMI or body mass index should be between 18 to 43. Um, some of you might know about your BMI because your doctor has told you about it. If you don't know what your BMI is, there is a calculator um, online. If you, uh, if you go to the NHLBI uh, BMI calculator website, you can put in your height and your weight and the calculator will tell you your BMI. Yeah, so we can looking, put that in the. We can put a link to that in the show notes. By the way, perfect. So Thank you for doing it. that. Yep. yep. Okay. And then after that, there's two other criteria that are really important. So you have to be on prednisone between five to fifteen milligrams a day um, for at least six months. And if it's not prednisone, it could be another corticosteroid like um, hydroxycortisone or dexamethasone equivalent dosing. And then you also have to be uh, on methotrexate or azathioprine for six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. But well, because almost it's over 90% of all patients at least start out with some version of prednisone, some dosage of prednisone Yeah, and five to 15 would be, in my opinion, a mild dosage. Agreed. Yeah. And then uh, azathioprine I take and methotrexate I said the heck with it because it made me feel like crap all the time. <laughs> but, but those yeah. are the, my point is, is those are, those are, those have got to be the three most common drugs along with maybe Remicade. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't, I um, can't think of a study that specifies the percentages, but overall in, in one study called the Delphi study, the, the most common medicines used for prednisone and methotrexate and um, azathioprine is, probably right behind there after all of those. Mm-hmm. And all of those, well, prednisone is on label and the other two are off label, right? Yeah. Prednisone has FDA approval, um, but not because of a randomized, you know, blinded trial. It's because, you know, biologically it makes sense that it would help these patients. Got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so you've got you are, are at the uh, University of Florida, and then there are centers in Maryland, Colorado, Ohio, and in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people don't have to live in those cities if they can just get to those places. 
uh, or find someone, I guess, who has an association with somebody in one of those places. Mm -hmm. And so where are you in terms of recruitment right now? Yeah, so so there's different sites in this country and in other countries, and each site um, recruits different numbers of patients. At our site, so far, we've screened two patients and randomized one patient. So one patient has actually completed the study for us. One patient. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we looked at all those phases earlier. What, what phase are you in right now then? So, so currently, we're, this is a phase two study. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And how long you're recruiting right now? So how, how long before you find the correct number of patients? And, and how long does a patient have to participate in your study? Yeah, so the trial lasts 28 weeks and includes 11 visits. So those are pretty frequent visits for the patient. Um, We know that we're done recruiting for the study when the number that we calculated we needed in the study has been reached across all the centers that are enrolling. So every study before the study starts, they determine how many patients you need to see a certain effect size, to see a certain outcome. And they've done statistical analysis to calculate that. And then, you know, what happens is let's say it's a hundred patients. What happened? And you have 10 sites. What you want is, you know, each of those sites to enroll about 10 patients. So overall you have a hundred patients. Yeah. The bigger the sample size, the more accurate the findings. Yes. Oftentimes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can be very scientific, but we look at polling data for elections all the time and, and yeah. you wonder how they can talk to 400 people and that's going to represent the entire United States. So so that can be done if you're really yeah. good with your statistics, but you, you want to talk to and look at as many people as you can. Yeah, so that's true, region. John, but you also, gotta, you also have to think about what challenges having more patients brings. So in a disease like sarcoidosis, which is considered rare, It's considered an orphan disease where there's not as many patients. If you say, well, I want to try to get, you know, 5,000 patients with sarcoidosis and I have 20 inclusion and exclusion criteria. Well, guess what? That's going to be hard because sarcoidosis is rare. Sarcoidosis is different from patient to patient. So it's, it's harder to find those right patients. And that's why, you know, we've enrolled one patient so far because because the disease is so different from person to person and because of you, patients may not meet all of these criteria in sarcoidosis, it's usually a little bit slower to enroll these patients because of those factors. Yeah, no, I can see it's, it's gotta be extremely difficult to be sitting where you are and, and try and and move the needle. So one of the things that before I forget, we're looking at patients will be doing a, a pulmonary function test Mm-hmm. And some sort of a PET or CAT scan and what else? They're going to do a PET scan, a six minute walk test, which most of you guys are familiar with and some blood work. Okay. So that's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the patient that I enrolled in my study, he actually really liked the fact that there was a PET scan because they gave him more information about his sarcoidosis. Um, the important thing to know is all of these tests that you know, are done in the context of a clinical trial. So that doesn't get billed to your insurance. So you're not going to pay co-payments on these, on these things. It's all included with the study. So some people who don't have great health insurance or have no health insurance, 
they, you know, they may choose to be in a study because they can get treatment and testing for free. So somebody's listening to this and they say, okay, I think I want to, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they do? Who do they contact? Yeah. So uh, great question. So um, uh, the foundation for sarcoidosis research on their website has a link to this specific Novartis trial. And if they click on that, they'll get some information on how to be involved. And, um, you know, FSR partners with Novartis and other drug companies to do trials that are available. And you can look on their website, they have a section about clinical trials. And then in general, what I really encourage um, your listeners, because I know most of your listeners are really savvy, you know, investigators of sarcoidosis, um, go on Google and put in clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and FSR will also link you to clinicaltrials.gov. This is a website that's run by the U.S. government, and it records every clinical trial that is being done in a certain disease. Um, and, you know, and there is, you know, legally, all of these t- studies have to be registered into this website. So, you know, so that the government knows what studies are being done, and then patients can also find studies that apply to them. So even me as an investigator, every couple of months, I like to go on that website and type in sarcoidosis and I click all active studies and I see what, you know, what studies are out there. What are different investigators and researchers looking into in sarcoidosis? And even if you're not interested in a clinical trial, I highly encourage you to go to clinicaltrials.gov and type in sarcoidosis. So you get an idea of what researchers are looking into right now in sarcoidosis. Gotcha. And I've got a list here of, of uh, patients, for instance, anyone diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension would, would be excluded from your trial. And there's a list. Not, I'm not going to ask you to get into that right now, but I'll include that um, following our discussion. And, and all these links that you're talking about, I can put in the show notes as well. But what, what I'm encouraged about, and I know that at this point, it's premature to talk about any of the potential or expected outcomes from the trial. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. could skew all kinds of things, and we, and we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. What I'm excited about is to hear that a company that I've heard of, a mm-hmm. big one, Novartis, yes. is interested in playing in the sarcoidosis space. Yes, yes, absolutely, John. When you have a disease that's rare and that's an orphan condition, not every pharmaceutical in, uh, company is motivated because you know what? If you have a few number of patients that are got fewer number of patients that are going to take your take your medicine, you know, you may not have as much sales. So, and that's logic. That's business. But having large companies that are very, you know, well-known pharmaceutical companies like Novartis, getting them interested in our disease and the disease we care about is critical for us to come up with new, better, safer treatments for our patients. And, you know, I, I've, been, I've been in the sarcoidosis space for almost 10 years now. And the last few years is the first time where I really have started to see that pharmaceutical companies are paying attention to, to sarcoidosis patients. And, you know, I, for one, you know, I'm, I'm out there, uh, you know, that us as researchers and investigators, we're really interested in testing new, new, new drugs for our patients. And I think our patients are really interested in having new treatment options. Hmm. So we're ready and willing, whoever's got 
you know, things that they want to investigate and, and um, think that it could help sarcoidosis patients, we're ready to go. Well, that's great. And thank you for all you do. Um, 10 years of, of working in sarcoidosis. And there's, there's so few of you really around the country who are really, I have doctors here in, in where I live in Western Virginia who quote unquote can treat sarcoidosis, mm-hmm. but I, but I feel much more comfortable going to a sarcoidosis specialist mm-hmm. and that there isn't one in Western Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I drive to the Cleveland clinic mm-hmm. seven mm-hmm. hours, but, but that's, I can go up there and I can see doctors who are talking to sarcoidosis patients and looking at research every single day. Mm-hmm. And, and for, for those doctors and for you, uh, just from on behalf of the sarcoidosis community, to the extent that I can speak for, for my uh, fellow SARC patients, thank you so much for everything you're doing and for all your research. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, I feel so blessed and lucky to work with sarcoidosis patients. Um, I, I'm, I just feel so blessed to have the job I have, John, I really do. Well, good luck with your research. I, I know it's going to be a while before you can report any findings, mm-hmm. but uh, I hope you'll you'll come back on the Sark Fighter podcast, Dr. Patel, and and uh, and share your findings, or or if you need more people or whatever, know that know that uh, the, the voice that we can bring through the podcast, we're happy to do it, and we, and we really want to share your results. Yeah, no, that's great, John. I would love to do that too. I'm, I'm really hoping that we get a good positive result from this study so we can expand and, and get a real, you know, get real treatment options that are, you know, specific to our, our own patients and not just borrowed from other diseases, you know. Great. Dr. Yeah. Devia Patel, thank you so much for joining me on the Sark Fighter podcast. Thank you, John. I feel like a zombie just stumbling by the way i need to clarify a couple of things that we talked about during our conversation first of all i need to let you know that uh, we mentioned that the drugs that are used to treat sarcoidosis um, are not approved for sarcoidosis necessarily but they are fda approved drugs they've been through the process and they're safe just uh, that's the problem is that, is that drugs have not been approved for sarcoidosis. So there are many drugs out there that we as patients take, but uh, and they seem to work like in, in my case, for example, but they are not uh, they're not drugs that have been reviewed and approved uh, specifically for sarcoidosis. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Also, when we talk about um, uh, what you uh, need to have done if you want to qualify for this clinical trial that, that we're talking about, um, one of the things that they require is that your sarcoidosis is diagnosed with a biopsy. So they want someone to have actually you know, pulled a little piece of the sarcoid out of your body and to have had a biopsy either in the past or maybe you get a biopsy, you get the results, and then 
uh, and then you are uh, maybe uh, a candidate for the trial. But uh, they really just want to be really sure that it's sarcoidosis that you're dealing with. So they want you to have had a biopsy by and, and had the results by the time you get to the trial. Um, and then also when you get into this trial, um, we didn't want to make it sound like uh, if you're some people get the placebo, which is like a sugar pill. It's nothing at all. And then other people in the trial will get the drug. Um, well, that's what the trial is for, is to find out if the drug works. And honestly, in many cases, maybe even the majority of the cases, that drug will not work. Uh, and that's so. So don't just think that if you get into this trial that, hey, you know, if I'm the lucky one that gets the drug, I get cured. Well, it may not go that way. That's why they do the trial. That's what they're trying to figure out is, is how effective is this drug in combating what researchers have hypothesized that it will fix. So I wanted to make a couple of those clarifications before we moved on. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, man, I'd, I want to help move the needle, maybe help myself help myself and advance the cause for the fight against sarcoidosis, and I, I'm interested in joining this clinical trial, reaching out to uh, Dr. Patel, well, I'll include all the contact information in the show notes, and if you just want to Google it and you can't find the show notes, whatever, just go to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research website, uh, but all of this, again, will be uh, will be right there in the show notes for the Sark Fighter podcast. But there are a couple of precautions. I'll mention a couple of them right here, but after a bit, it becomes too detailed uh, for me to go into. Uh, but again, I will copy and paste all of this and, and put it in the show notes. But it, you are not eligible to participate if you've ever been diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, if you have a known diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis, and anyone with a known diagnosis, for instance, me, of neurosarcoidosis, you are not eligible. And then there is a list of treatments that if you have been treated with a whole list of drugs that I will not bother to list here, uh, you also are not eligible. And you're not, you cannot participate if you are a current smoker. And there are just a bunch of links with more information and, and, and a couple of additional specific restrictions. And I'll put those together in the show notes and you can, uh, you can follow along. But Dr. Patel really is doing a great job. And you heard her talk about how the clinical trials work and then uh, how she has uh, specifically already worked with one patient but she needs, she needs to have uh, several patients go through this process in order to get to the next step and maybe seeing if Novartis is onto something with this new drug. And that's, that's all we can really say about it at this point. Now, a couple of, uh, of regular things that I like to tell you about. I always have to tell you the official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and the White Hot Lizards, which is the band in which he plays. And Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. And you can go all the way back and, uh, and listen. At the end of episode 50, I played the whole song. You hear bits and snippets of it throughout the podcast. But, man, it's a haunting song. And those lyrics really get to me every time I take the time to listen. I'll find myself out working out or something and that song is going through my head it's that catchy all right 
But I do want to let you know that there is a reason for hope. That's why we do the podcast. You heard that today with Dr. Patel as she's looking for a new drug uh, to uh, to hopefully help fight this disease. And the Starfighter podcast comes out every other Monday. So there is your reason for hope every uh, two times a month, basically. Don't forget to go back and listen. There's a couple of bonus episodes on SARC, one on SARC and COVID, and another bonus episode on just dealing with prednisone, which is the frontline defense right now. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's not fun. If you're new here, I mentioned this earlier, but you're just trying to figure out what sarcoidosis is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. That is one of the most listened to episodes. If you want to hear my backstory, that's episode one. And if you want to know all about the formation of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. That's episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson, the founders. And if you are interested in just letting me know what you think of the show, if you've got a thought, if you've got an idea, if you want to appear on the show, send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can follow the Sark Fighter on Instagram and on Facebook. And I appreciate your interest in the podcast. It helps me reach so many more people and grow the show if you would share it on your social media. And if you like it, just please tell one person. Find somebody in the sarcoidosis space, whether it's your doctor or a fellow patient. Um, just just tell one person and, and share a link and see if, if maybe they want to listen along as well. Please also give it a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. I want to once again say thank you to Dr. Davia Patel for joining me here today. And until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead men walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead men walking.